And as you are seated, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, of course, it's printed there in your worship booklet, um, your bulletin. While you're turning, I'm going to go ahead and answer the question that I think many of you might be asking, at least those of you in this half of the room might be asking, hey, Todd, what, what happened to your face there? What's going on with that? Well, my doctor uh, called it a procedure. Um, having endured the two hours of the procedure, I think that's kind of an unfair word. And I feel like he should have called it a surgery. I also feel like he should have put me to sleep and not made me stay awake for this procedure. The staff seemed pretty committed to this concept of a procedure. Uh, that's what they kept calling it, even though I kept asking questions. At one point, I called in to ask them if I was going to be able to drive home on my own, and I feel like the nurse giggled at me. Um, nevertheless, true to their form, they were really committed to that when I showed up for the procedure. Walking down the hallway, the nurse is taking me there, and she said, Mr. Erickson here, you want to go into this room right here? And sure enough, on the door, it said, procedure room. I was like, wow, you all are really committed to this uh, procedure thing. Uh, the next day, I was actually walking uh, in from the parking lot right there to come to work, and I thought, you know, God has a procedure room. In fact, God has many procedure rooms, but one of the main procedure rooms, certainly in my life, that God has is this room right here. And while certainly by God's mercy, he receives us as we are, by his grace, he never leaves us that way. He's all about making sure that, that he cuts out of our lives those things which might be harmful to us, while at the same time being a good father who always, whose intent is always for healing. So while there might be procedures, some of us might feel, hey, it felt a little like surgery, God. The intent of our heavenly father is always to bring us healing. And we need healing right now, don't we? I mean, after this year, these months, it's been quite a year. And I think we're all tired of saying it's been quite a year. And frankly, it's been quite a week. And I bet all of us right now would say, Father, have mercy on us. We need a procedure this morning. Well, in that context, I invite you to follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, going through verse 12. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, here we are in your procedure room. We're asking by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in us what you want to do. Lord, work in our hearts, work in our minds, that you might sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. For we make this prayer in his matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, these last several months, we've been in the book of Exodus every Sunday morning, except for occasional uh, diversions. And as we've gone through the book of Exodus, we've seen God making a people for himself. He's taking the Israelites out of captivity and he's crafting for himself a people. He's setting them apart. He's, He's showing them his character and he's wanting to place his character upon them. And then last week, Brian took us to Jeremiah, where we see God speaking to his people, his people there in a, in a different country than their own, under in incredibly difficult circumstances, truly in captivity, marginalized. And God speaks to his people in the book of Jeremiah, telling them what it means to be his people, how they are to live as his people. And here in Matthew chapter 5, really 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to his people and he's ushering in his kingdom and he's letting his people know what it means to be people of the kingdom. And I think, brothers and sisters, that is very important for us in this church right now. And I say that because I fear that amidst all the craziness that's been going on in our lives over these last seven, eight months, I fear that at times we've been losing sight of the kingdom. There's many things we could look at in these verses that are before us. We could, honestly, we could take the next six months and study this, uh, just these 12 verses. Um, we're not going to take that long. Uh, but I want us to see four things this morning for us as we think about what it means to be God's people in this place at this time. What does it mean for us right now here in Memphis, Tennessee, Second Presbyterian Church to be living in this kingdom? The first thing I want us to see is what it looks like for kingdom living. I want us to see kingdom living begins with our spiritual poverty. Kingdom living begins with our spiritual poverty. You can see that clearly in verses 3 through 6. But you can see that probably most clearly just in the opening line of Jesus' sermon. In verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know many of you uh, women who are involved in the women Bible studies in our church, you've been studying Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this very week. And it was not by design. I can't say that uh, I'm preaching on it this Sunday. It was just a happy coincidence. But I did take the opportunity to listen to Lisa Jensen's teaching to the women's Bible study this week and really enjoyed it. And I loved what she says in this place right here regarding our spiritual poverty, regarding the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Lisa talked about a time in her life when she was reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount, and when she came to this place where he talked about what it truly meant to be poor in spirit, and it said that it arrested her heart, it arrested her thinking, it stopped her 
And she said it changed her. And I think that's what I long for all of us this morning, that we would be arrested in our hearts again this morning as we see that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, you remember and know that that this is not a, a physical poverty. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who really struggle to make ends meet, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that. He is not saying, blessed are those who are emotionally poor. He's not saying, blessed are those who struggle with depression, who struggle with feeling downtrodden and overwhelmed. Certainly, we can see in God's word that he has for us as a heavenly father times when he cares for us in our provisional, or our resource needs and cares for us in our emotional needs. But what Jesus is saying here is much more profound. He's talking about who we are spiritually before God, before a holy God, as we stand there spiritually naked, spiritually destitute before God. We see this in several places throughout our Bibles, a couple of the places. One of them is Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets this vision of God. And when he sees God, he cries out, Woe to me, I am undone. Literally, I am coming apart because I am a sinful man with sinful lips and I live among a people that are sinful. The Apostle John experiences the same thing in Revelation chapter 1. It says there that he turned to look to see the voice that was speaking to him in that vision. And he comes face to face with the glorified and risen Christ. And John says, when I saw him, I fell on my face as if I were dead. I became completely undone. Literally, the the, the phrase here when it talks about poverty um, is begging poor. Blessed are the begging poor in spirit. Jesus is making this point. Listen, I'm not talking about that, you're, that you have not quite enough resources to come before me as a holy God, that you, that you have a little bit of goodness, but uh, you're going to need more. You're, you're not quite up to speed with that. That's not what he's saying. No, no, you and I are, are completely destitute. We are helpless and we are hopeless before the Lord. This is the exact opposite of any kind of pride that we could ever have. Any kind of pride at all. Because when we enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we enter into that kingdom, Jesus says, understanding that we bring with us nothing. Like the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I think the part we forget, though, sometimes is that's how we should always be living in the kingdom. I think we can make the mistake sometimes of thinking, well, I come into the kingdom understanding my spiritual poverty, understanding that I'm, a, I'm a, a beggar before the Lord. And we forget, no, that's the way we are every day. Sometimes I feel like we get going in the Christian life and we feel like we've banked some goodness. We've, we've banked some righteous acts that, that yeah, I mean, we're, we're poor, but we're not as poor as the next guy. No, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is for those who clearly understand that every day when we wake up, we are spiritual beggars, that we have nothing, nothing to offer. 
We need to keep seeing it that way in order to be those who live in this kingdom. Kingdom living begins with our spiritual poverty. And I've thought to myself, how much turmoil in my own life, how much worry, anxiety, stress in my own life is caused by my own silly pride. Thinking that somehow spiritually I've gained a step here or there that would cause me to to maybe even be a little bit better than the next person. And how I cling to those things and have to hold on to them as if, as if they're, they're precious things, not recognizing that not only is that just sick and silly, it's also sin. Oh, and what joy and freedom can be mine if I surrender? What joy and freedom could we in, have as, as those who are members of his kingdom if we were to wake, wake up every morning and extend our empty hands, knowing that they're empty, and say to our heavenly Father, whatever you have for me today, I trust that. Whatever you have, I will accept that because you are a good Father and I have nothing. Kingdom of living begins with our spiritual poverty. We go on. Second thing I want us to see is that kingdom living is countercultural. Kingdom living is countercultural. We certainly see that in verses 7 through 9, but you actually see it through chapters 5, 6, and 7, the whole thing. When you read through that, I mean, you, you find places like verse 43 of chapter 5 where it says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As you go on and on, as you read this, you see this great manifesto as Jesus lays out what it means for us to be dwellers in the kingdom. You understand that there's nothing in the world like this. There is no culture that that fits this. And at every place in history and in every location on the planet... This sermon, these words of the king about the kingdom to his people calls us to live counterculturally. Just think for a second about the context in which Jesus preached this sermon. He really had four main groups there who were trying to define what what religion looked like in Palestine at that time. You had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees for their, their idea was, you know, in order for us to really be religious, in order to really live out this religion, we just need more rules. We need everybody, to, we need more obedience. We need people to be hemmed in. So let's make, make sure we have more rules and let's make sure people obey and then we can be the religious people that we need to be. The Sadducees, second group, were like, no, 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 no. We need to, we need to, we need to, be of the world. You know, yes, we need God and we need to have some of those beliefs, but we need to be culturally relevant and we need to connect those two. So we'll take from, from God what we need, but let's pull those things together. That's really what it would take for us to be religious in this world. The third group you had were the zealots. The de- zealots would say, no, in order for us to be religious, we've got to take our nation back. We've got to take our nation back from the Romans. Until we take our nation back, we're not going to really be able to be the religious people that we need to be. And then you had the Essenes. The Essenes were those who thought, no, we've got to separate ourselves from the world. We've got to find a place where we're not going to be contaminated by anyone else. We've got to set up our own little area and be our own little people and just be completely out of it. 
And brothers and sisters, these words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 fly in the face of every single one of those ideas of religiosity. Blows it all up. Completely counter to even those who are attempting to use these things, you see, because no worldly approach will ever fit the kingdom of God. No government will ever fit the kingdom of God. No culture will ever fit the kingdom of God. No nation will ever fit the kingdom of God. It's always going to be countercultural, no matter where you live. If you live in New Zealand, if you live in the United States, if you live in, in Budapest, if you live in Bangladesh, at some point, living in the kingdom is going to cause you to live counterculturally. Two of my favorite pastors, both from Scotland, Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg, grew up in Scotland, moved here, ministered in churches uh, throughout the United States. When they spoke and wrote about Matthew chapter 5, it happened to be at a time when, uh, when they were still, and this was their legal status, and they bring it up, resident aliens. Like it's a legal status in the United States. Both of them said, I'm a resident alien here because I'm from Scotland. Sinclair Ferguson actually told you what resident alien number he had, his legal status here. He said, because we're not from here. We're from Scotland. But we're living here now, ministering here. And both of them point this out. That is, as followers of Jesus, our actual status wherever we live on the face of this planet. Whether you live in the United States, whether you live in Budapest, whether you live in Bangladesh, whether you live in Tokyo, whether you live in Sydney, Australia. As followers of Christ, wherever you live, your actual status, our actual status is resident aliens. And sometimes don't we, don't we forget, even as we live here, we forget that that is who we are. You see, kingdom living is countercultural. Thirdly, the words of Jesus here show us that kingdom living is hard on this side of heaven. Kingdom living is hard on this side of heaven. You see that in verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Wait a second. Persecuted for righteousness sake? I'm doing the good thing. I'm doing the right thing. And I'm going to face persecution for that? It says that in a lot of other places in our Bibles too, doesn't it? Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that we Christians in America really struggle with this. And if you don't, I'll confess it. I, I sometimes really struggle with this. I'm, I'm, I've grown used to, as a Christian, in the place where God has placed me on this planet in the time that I've been placed, I've grown used to having some influence, to having some power connected to my Christian beliefs. And frankly, I kind of like that. But for those of you, and many of you here in this church, so many of you intentionally take uh, mission trips around the world. Isn't it interesting that while we as American Christians really struggle with this idea that kingdom living is going to be hard on this side of heaven, isn't it interesting that, that as we meet brothers and sisters in other places around the world, they don't struggle with this concept? 
They don't struggle with the idea that kingdom living is going to be hard on this side of heaven. They actually accept it as a reality. I remember years ago, I was on a mission trip with uh, some of our students here from, uh, from Second Prez. And we were in Uganda. And we were talking with this pastor, Reverend Stephen was his name. And Reverend Stephen had grown up in Uganda and then actually had spent five years as a pastor, assistant pastor in Baltimore, and now was back in Uganda and was planning to finish out his ministry there. So he was Ugandan who just happened to spend five years in uh, the U.S. And I asked him over lunch, we were sitting there talking, and I asked him, what are the differences, Reverend Stephen, that you saw between the United States and Uganda? What are some of the cultural, all that, differences you've seen? He said, Todd, really there's just one, and it's a big one. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Todd, in America, comfort is a culture. In Africa, comfort is a luxury. In America, you expect to be comfortable. You feel it's your right. In Africa, we don't have that same expectation. I've never forgotten those words, and I've seen them in other places and other times. I remember taking a group of students to uh, Peru, to Cusco, Peru, and it was 1999, summer of 1999, and every day uh, there at the missionary's house, we didn't know if we were going to have hot water or not have hot water. Sometimes the power shut off at 8, sometimes it stayed on until 10. And uh, at that time uh, in the history of America, summer of 1999, we were all a little worked up about what was going to happen when it turned 2000. We called it Y2K, like the whole, everything's going to shut down. We're not going to be able to open up the grocery stores, remember, because the doors are going to be connected to computers. So we're wondering, do I store some water and some food? You know, what's going to happen? And my students were a little, a little panicked as they watched the precarious nature of, of power and water and other things in Cusco, Peru, they were a little worried about our missionaries. And so one point over breakfast, one of the students said to the missionary, uh, are you worried about Y2K? And the missionary just laughed kindly and said, it's Y2K every week here. <laughs> no. <laughs> On this side of heaven, kingdom living can be hard. You see, if you're living for Christ the King, this is what our Bible tells us. If you and I are living for Christ the King, then it says in our Bibles that we are going to face being misunderstood, being treated unfairly, being treated unjustly, marginalized, even persecuted, hated, even while we do good. Peter warns us, don't, don't, don't face persecution because you're being a jerk. But do know that even as you go about seeking to be a, a, a person who loves God and loves their neighbor, this is going to be your reality. I remember years ago, Sunday evening worship services, several times this one same pastor, he said it at least three times that I can remember. He would say to all of us, we say that we're followers of Jesus well, where is Jesus going? Where are we following him to? We're following him to the cross. That's where he's going. Kingdom living is hard on this side of heaven. Finally, kingdom living is full of blessing. Kingdom living is full of blessing. 
We call these verses here the Beatitudes because every single line begins with blessed. And we know that blessed means more than just happy. Even though some translations sometimes translate it happy, that just doesn't give it the, the, the intensity that actually exists here. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, makes it clear, no, this blessedness that we see talked about through the entire Old Testament means approved of God. Your, your happiness, your, your, your blessedness is becoming because at the core you're approved of God. Again, I love what Lisa Jensen said this week as she taught our women's Bible study. She said she likes the word bliss because of that hymn. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I am approved of God. And then she goes on. Lisa did. In, she says it's internal joy that cannot be shaken by external circumstances because it's focused on heaven. You say that again. It's internal joy that cannot be shaken by external circumstances because it's focused on heaven. You see that this whole passage here is bracketed by heaven. Do you see that? Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends this section of blessedness by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, there's two things here that Jesus is telling we, us we have when we are in the kingdom. When you're in the kingdom, you have these two things, and you have them right now. You have, first of all, the blessing of God upon you. You have the approval of God right now. As you sit here in this sanctuary, in this procedure room, you have the approval of God. If you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the approval of God on you right now. That blessing rests upon you right now. And you have the promise of a reward of heaven in your possession right now. If your faith is in Christ, if you have entered into the kingdom by saying, I am helpless and helpless without a Savior, I'm spiritually destitute, and I fall completely on you, then you have right now the approval of God upon you as a blessing. You have the reward of heaven, or the Bible talks about as an inheritance that cannot spoil, uh, spoil or perish or fade. And that is in your possession right now. And listen to this, brothers and sisters. There is nothing, there is nothing that can take that blessing from you. There's been a lot of worry about our health over these last six, eight months. Hear what God's word is saying. There is nothing that can take that blessing from you, not even precarious health. Precarious health cannot take the reward from you. In fact, it may be the thing that ushers you into your reward. But your health, no matter how poor, will not take that blessing and that reward from you. All the, the tensions that exist in our minds are just struggling to just just feel like we know what's going on and we're getting pushed this way and that way. We're not sure what to believe and all that, all that stuff. Nothing, nothing can take your blessing from you. 
Nothing can take that reward from you. Let me get even more specific. Nothing that happens on November 3rd, 2020 can take that blessing from you. Nothing that happens on November 3rd, 2020 can take that reward from you. There is no event or no system events that could happen then that would take that reward and that blessing from you. Oh, praise the Lord. You see, because you belong to the kingdom. You belong to the kingdom. You know, amidst all this worry and tension that that we've had, that I've had, even my own thoughts and my own heart over health and politics and race and religious liberty and protesting and all of that stuff, amidst all of that tension, all of that worry, I've found myself over the last six, eight months, honestly, I found myself thinking about our brothers and sisters in China. You see, prior to the pandemic, we were pretty committed to being praying regularly for our brothers and sisters in China who are undergoing immense persecution. And I found myself thinking about them during these last six months. How have they responded? How have they responded when their lives were threatened? How have they responded when their rights were taken away? How have our Chinese brothers and sisters responded when they faced injustice, when they lost church property, when they lost religious freedom? How have they responded? Well, we actually know how they responded. Because at our mission conference in 2019, they actually, a couple of them came and they talked to us. And I'll never forget what they said. They said this. We think God is showing us that we started to put our trust in earthly things and not him. We think God is showing us that we've lost sight of the kingdom. We got comfortable with things that were earthly and we began to trust in those. And God is showing us that he has a kingdom and that we belong to him. You know, they even asked us to pray for them. And of course, I wanted to pray things like get them out of prison, give them their church property back, make it so that the police aren't keeping them from meeting and worship together, give them maybe some influence in their cities so they can have some power to go ahead and and meet and do what they need to do. They didn't ask for that prayer. (laughs) They said pray. Pray that we will learn this lesson from God and we will stop trusting in earthly things. And we'll keep our eyes on the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, whatever happens in the next 30 days, whatever happens in the next three months, whatever happens in the next three years, whatever happens in the next 30 years, however many years the Lord gives you, days, weeks the Lord gives you, let's not lose sight of the kingdom. Let's not lose sight of the kingdom. As we close this morning, I have some good news for you. And we need some good news, don't we? Not only good news, it's true news. We need that too, right? Here it is. A dear friend of mine, pastor in South Carolina, said it to his congregation just a few weeks ago. Here's the good, true news. 
The tomb is empty, but the throne is not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. And we would ask, Heavenly Father, that you would seal these things to our hearts. Teach us more and more, even this afternoon. Open up more and more to us that you want to say. Father, sanctify us to be your people, people of the kingdom. Teach us what it means to live as resident aliens who really understand where our citizenship lies and at the same time, like Brian said last week, seek the shalom of whatever place you've planted us. And Father, may we not put our trust in earthly things, but instead rejoice that the blessing from you, the approval from you, is placed upon us that our reward is sure. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.